Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. And it is our desire at Our American Heritage to explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. Understanding the history of this great nation is paramount to understanding our greatness. And today we want to welcome as our special guest, Adam Griesick, and he is the Director of Visitor and Communication at Valley Forge National Historical Park. Adam, welcome to the show. Doing, Arch. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, it's a privilege to have anyone from the Park Service with us. So, Adam, before you get into your topic, you share it with our listeners a little bit of your background. Oh, absolutely. Yes, Adam Gressick. I'm the uh, Director of Visitor and Community Engagement here at Valley Forge National Historical Park. I've uh, been in this role since September. I'm the uh, Public Information Officer, so I handle a lot of uh, media communication as well for the park. I've been a federal employee since 2008, starting with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in downtown Washington, D.C., and then I've been with the National Park Service as a park ranger since 2012, starting with Arlington House, the Robert E. Lee Memorial, then uh, most of my time at Fort Washington, Oxon Hill, and Piscataway Parks, a section of National Capital. And Adam, how did you get to Valley Forge? How did I get to Valley Forge? I, I wanted to be here. <laughs> Good. <laughs> uh, the Park Service isn't like the Army. Like, like you don't get orders to Yellowstone one month or, you know, it's the civil service. All the jobs are competitive. So you've got to fill out your resume, have your uh, transcripts and everything. And if there is a position available, you apply for it and it gets, you know, you're determined whether or not you're eligible. You interview, they check your references. And if you're the person they determine is the best for the job, you get the selection. And uh, after doing a temporary assignment at Minuteman National Historical Park up in Massachusetts, you know, the North Bridge, lovely, lovely site, I got wind of the 250th anniversary of the revolution and the founding of the United States. And I knew it was coming, but sort of hearing about it as something that the Park Service was going to be backing and supporting, I really wanted to find a Revolutionary War Park to work at. And there is a perfect opportunity here at Valley Forge. And uh, it's been great so far. It's a lovely park. We've got a really dedicated professional team here to keep the park beautiful, you know, give our visitors some good experiences, you know, keep all the books in order. Really, it's a great place to work and a great place to visit. Well, it's right in our backyard, as our listeners know, and it's just, in my opinion, it's one of the turning points of the American Revolution. So, Adam, please share, and then we'll get into where you grow up and what's your educational background? So, uh, I claim myself to be both a both from Massachusetts and a Floridian because I was born in Massachusetts, lived there till I was about six years old. So uh, my earliest memories are of New England. But then my uh, family moved to Central Florida in 1983. Actually, my grandfather retired out of the Air Force to Orlando, and the, you know my mom and my dad kind of followed suit. And so I grew up in Central Florida. I spent a lot of time up in St. Augustine at the Castillo de San Marcos. It was one of my favorite places to go vacation as a little kid. So whenever mom and dad <laughs> wanted to take me somewhere, I'd always stay at St. Augustine. And uh, that's kind of where I got my initial love for studying history and talking about history. And so, you know, grew up in Florida, you know, did a brief stint with the U.S. Air Force for a few years, and then got my bachelor's degree in history from the University of Central Florida. Well, how do you like our weather compared to Florida? <laughs> compared to Florida, um, 
February I could pass on, although, uh, <laughs> you know, for the most part, uh, this weekend was lovely, bright, yeah. sunny with the uh, 80 degree days. And I heard this is kind of the norm. And, you know, it, it gets a little hot come August, September, but I'm used to it. I actually... I don't know if it's better th- if it's better than the uh, the mid to late summers in Washington D.C. I'll be happy. <laughs> so. Adam, that question was a little tongue in cheek because the listeners know that I'm in Florida in February. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so all right. So, well, begin to share with our listeners, please, what you'd like to share with us today. So, one of the things, and I, I alluded to it a little bit in talking about where I came from, and you know, your show really really hits on this, but understanding the Americans, uh, under, you know, getting an appreciation of our history and understanding the American story. And the American story is vast, you know, yes, however yes. many millions, you know, hundreds of millions, if not, if not a billion people that have considered themselves Americans from our earliest days, you know, they all have unique, interesting stories. And it's not always the big headline grabbers where you can really get that appreciation and you don't have to go to the Smithsonian. I mean, if you can absolutely do so, it's wonderful museums, but there is so much that's around you just by opening your eyes and and like seeing what's in your neighborhood, your local Mm -hmm. area. And it's, it's quite incredible. Yeah. And the whole, there's a professional field of like public history of how, you know, the average person sort of consumes their history. Like, how do they take it in? And it can be anything from, you know, what they see on film, the books they read, and the experiences they have. And from transitioning from Washington, you know, Florida to Washington, D.C., and now up here in Pennsylvania, it's been really awesome to, like, take in all of the history that this local area has to offer. I mean, starting with, you know, my, my place of work, I mean, which is, I'm really lucky I get to work in one of the most famous, you know, a, a, wor- a worldwide known famous historic site, but then finding out all the other little things around me. You know, over the past couple of weeks, I've had some really great experiences. There's a uh, museum up in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. It's called the Mercer Museum. Yes, yes. And uh, it's a fascinating place in that they're not grand artifacts. They are mundane items, if you will. And that was a beautiful experience in that it was just hand tools. It's, this is the, you know, this is the, the hammer that, that forged the nails, that built the house, that the cow lived in, that the, that the, that the milk made milk, and mm-hmm. the cheese maker made the cheese out of, you know, that somebody actually had the wherewithal to stop and save all that stuff is amazing. And it's, you know, it's this, the, funky little concrete building in downtown Doylestown, I mean, which is, you know, like, you know very much a, you know, I, not, not the, you know I, don't, I don't mean by any means to insult lowly people that live in Doylestown, <laughs> but a very average sort of small yep. town has this amazing little gem sitting right in the middle of it. And if you didn't kind of stop and smell the roses a little bit, it could be very easily looked over. Yeah. And that story of just, you know, that America wasn't necessarily, you know, there were certainly great people, well-known people that helped build the tapestry of the American fabric that was also built by 
people whose names you'll probably never know, whose contributions don't warrant an oil painting or a book unto themselves, but their tools, their, their, what they held on a day-to-day basis, what kept people fed, what kept people clothed, what kept people with the stuff they need to do their mundane tasks that help keep the world running. Right. That mm-hmm. collection is sitting there. And that was quite a wonderful experience. And then... Um, you know, on a grander scale, I was out at the Reading uh, World War II oh. air show at the Mid-Atlantic yep. Air Museum. Again, kind of out, not, you know, not in a necessarily a big, you know, famous, you know, Reading's a very famous city for the railroad and everything. But, you know, again, you know, sort of small town America with this amazing World War II air show that you could show up to, walk around. You can see, I mean, especially the World War II generation is getting into its the very last twinkles of its twilight, you know, and the fact they had so many veterans there was fabulous yeah, in itself. Yeah. But to see to see the sights that they saw to some degree of, you know, the aircraft flying over, to to hear the noises, to smell uh, the burning aviation kerosene as the, <laughs> as the engines are spooling up. Like those are experiences that were so commonplace in the 1940s that are so rare nowadays. And it's incredible that if you want that experience, instead of just like, oh, you know, that's a fascinating documentary on, you know, a B-29, you can go and hear what it's like to have one fly over you. And those little experiences are really, really crucial. And that, you know, again, right there in your backyard, if you're living, you know, in the Valley Forge area, like I do, it's about a 45 minute drive. If you live in downtown Philadelphia, you know, probably an hour to an hour and a half, but easily something you could do in a day. And, you know, you can, you know, hear the aircraft, you know, feel the Feel the rough canvas of the tents, you know, <laughs> smell the old wool, you know, yep. whatever, yes. you know, like yep. all of those, you know, it makes that experience so much more lively and understandable. And they did have a handful of a few vets, you know, a few World War II vets that were there. And it was it was great to see them out still telling their stories. Yeah. You know. Adam, what are some of the things that you saw that really impressed you or that just gave you great interest? So, oh, in in Reading, I mean, there was a group there that was portraying a uh, coastal artillery unit that was at um, Corregidor. And Mm. uh, I'm a bit of a, and this ties into the, like my overall topic uh, a lot. I'm a big fortress nerd. Mm -hmm. I love old (laughs) forts. And it started from the Castillo de San Marcos. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's the old Spanish fort in St. Augustine. Yes. Yes. Been there. Yeah. Absolutely lovely. It is one of the most unique structures you'll ever find in the United States and also part of your National Park Service. But that's, I, just, I just got a love for old fortifications, which, you know, for a six-year-old boy is a pretty, you know, pretty easy connection. But then later in my career, I, I worked at Fort Washington Park, which yeah. had a, a second system fortress. Those were American fortresses built uh, just after the War of 1812. And it also had uh, uh, Endicott system batteries, which are big concrete structures that were built right around the turn of the 19th to 20th century. And so I go fortress hunting. Uh, I love to find, you know, wherever there's a harbor or some sort of approach to a coastal mm-hmm. city, if you start looking at the landscape enough, you find where the coastal defenses are. And, you know, a lot of times they're public lands, sometimes they're not, you know, but it's to go see the remnants of all of these old gun batteries and bases and everything is something that I just 
absolutely love doing. You know, you go traipse out in the woods along some river estuary or whatever, and it's like, oh, here's Battery Armistead. Wow, yes, that's yeah. a 12-inch emplacement. <laughs> and so when I ran into these guys at Reading, they had a Coast Artillery flag. And I was like, oh, Coast Artillery. And they were like, oh, cool. You know what that is. And <laughs> so they, they actually had the whole, um, they had set up the actual plotting tip, the whole system for how you would plot the guns, load them, and then eventually fire them. And it was all based off of this like 15 second interval. So you mm-hmm. would have 15 seconds to gather whatever piece of data for the plot, 15 seconds to do the calculation, and then another 15 seconds to communicate it to the gun battery to actually lay the gun. And they had the timer, like there was actually a clockwork timer, it would ring a bell like a little every 15 seconds. And they had the plotting charts set out and all the maps and one of the observation scopes. So they would be like, yep, turn it to here and you'd hit this button and that would give you the data, you know, mm. send it send it and spin a dial. And that's the, you know, the, the azimuth you're at and then the other scope. And that was really, really awesome to me. Because it was my particular nerdiness. Turns out, though, those guys all volunteer at Fort Hancock, which, again, it's a part of Sandy Hook, uh, which is another national park site. But they've got the gun batteries out there. They're working with the Park Service to do restoration on them. And they have the full setup within the gun battery. So, they, you know, how do they do a calculation in the uh, battery commander's tower and actually call it in to the gun crews? And they have some existing pintles and the carriages and tubes so they can actually do a little bit of the actual gun laying as well, which fascinating, fascinating for me personally. But there was so much out there that if you have any interest in World War II whatsoever, you can find it. And whether that's a family connection, something you read in a book, something you saw in a movie, so that you go out to an event like Reading and you can find that connection to yourself mm-hmm. and what's happening there. Yeah. And you mentioned, Adam, that there was at least one B-29 there. There was one, yeah, as a Fifi, one of uh, two that are airworthy still. And was there any B-17s there? There was a B-17. The 17 was supposed to be flying, but it was on the ground the whole time I was there. And I noticed that they had one of the engine cowls wide open and a bunch of tools out on the tarmac. So I have a feeling that the uh, one of the engines on the B-17 wasn't cooperating. (laughs) How how fun would that be to get a ride in a B-17? Oh, my (laughs) God. You can actually in some of the some of the aircraft owners sell rides. It looks like a great experience. Uh, my budget quite doesn't doesn't. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. Let yeah, me, let me have that luxury. But uh, <laughs> if, if one day, you know, yeah, if, if those planes are still flying and I happen to have the uh, disposable income, that 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 might be one of those wish list things. Uh, I <laughs> totally agree with you. What are some yeah. other things that you saw at Reading that really impressed you? There was one guy, and he set up uh, his whole display as a Navy company store, essentially uh, done up to look like it was at the uh, at the naval base at Tulagi, which is an atoll down in, near the Solomons, mm-hmm. and. It was, you know, like normally when you go to like reenactments and you see lots of like combat arms, you know, paratroopers, tank drivers, infantrymen. And this guy had his little plywood shack with the chicken wire around it. And he found a 
bunch of old, you know, Coca-Cola bottles and packets of Lucky Strikes and everything. And he was essentially the the commissary guy and, you know, had all the, you know, had research signage and everything. I think he had a family connection to that particular Navy base. So he used some of his great granddad's pictures. But it was such a simple thing that represented the war for so many Americans mm-hmm. yep. uh, that I think that's really special and that, you know, again, we know of like the, the, the great stories, you know, I, you think of Stephen Ambrose and, you know, Easy Company from, you know, Band of Brothers. Like, mm-hmm. it, I don't think Captain Winters ever could fathom that many people ever knowing his story, so yes. to speak, you know, <laughs> and those guys are, they're amazing figures, you know, but their experience that that paratrooper company was actually a very, I won't say unique, but not the majority of the experience for most Americans of the war. I mean, only 10% of the 16 million men and women who were in the service during World War II were actual like trigger pullers, you know, flying a mission, you know, digging a foxhole, driving a tank, something like that on the front lines. The other 90% were doing something else. Not to say that they weren't at risk or there wasn't danger, but they weren't firing a machine gun or, you know, anything like that. They were doing something to support those 10% who were. And so, yeah, your war could be just sitting out in the middle of an island selling Coca-Cola you know, <laughs> you know, for, for, you know, for uh, Navy money chips and making sure nobody runs off with the extra cigarettes. <laughs> you could be doing that for two years, and that was your war. And yeah, does it does it make for as an exciting of a read as, you know, jumping into Normandy? Obviously, no, but it's still that was the experience, you know, or, you know, you know, you know paving, paving a runway, you know, you know, driving canisters of fuel around in an airstrip, you know, right. you know, you know, chipping the paint on a on a supply vessel. I mean, all of them still worthwhile tasks and really the, the a, you know, Making World War II, we talk about it as like, you know, many people say World War II is like, oh, the unity that America felt and, you know, how we're all in it together. That connection of service, whether it was in the deadliest areas of the front line or in the most mundane, mind-numbing tasks in the rear, it was that sort of generational connection for all those people. And to see the mundane represented alongside the exciting was again something mm-hmm. really really cool to see there at, uh, at Reading. So, I was in a on a conference call with Adam last week and um, with Jason from the Freedoms Foundation. I was mute because I was in the doctor's office. But Adam, Adam, share with our listeners because I, I believe it's spot on when you and Jason were talking about the importance of touching, tasting, feeling our history, not just classroom book work dates and figures memorization. Yeah, that's actually been a big driving factor for me in my career professionally and also in sort of my own like personal enjoyment of history is that there is so much out there that you can read. I mean, there's books upon books Mm -hmm. upon books upon books. I mean, I'm sure me and, and there's a lot of sort of more history-minded rangers I know of. We probably have a library that we will never fully fully read all of it by the time we go, you know. But there's reading the words and there's putting that history in the into the like the theater of imagination in your mind, which is wonderful. But then to stand out there, to stand somewhere and see it or to have the fine details of it made real 
hammer it home so much more. And, you know, one, one of the things I emphasize to my staff is, you know, when it comes to like talking about the history, don't weigh people down with too many of the details, you know? So like, for example, if you go to like a battlefield, you know, and you, you can, you read about the battle, you know, I'll, I'll pick Manassas cause that was a, a battlefield that I worked at for a little while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can, you can read all about it and you can memorize the names of all the division commanders and the, the regimental commanders and everything. But, and, you know, you can, you can see, you can hear about the events and, you know, that sound, you know, depending on the author, it can sound, you know, fabulously exciting or very, very dull, but you can get that knowledge in there. But then you don't ever pick up the understanding of, like, you pick up so much more of an understanding when you actually stand on top of Henry Hill and you can say, oh, man, if I was having to charge up this thing into Stonewall Jackson's line, that's a much different experience than like, oh, yeah, well, they were ordered to charge. Okay, well, and bugle sounded, and they started running. But then when you look at it, it's like, oh, wow, they they came up a hundred foot gain in elevation on the on the hot, you know, one of the mm-hmm. hottest days yes. of the year of 1862. Yes. Uh, and the grass was about waist high. And you're standing in that grass of like, and looking down like, man, if, if I was a Confederate soldier up here, these guys would have no chance. You know, and that reality of the situation, while you will never be able to fully experience the Battle of Manassas again, it, it happened in that moment, and that moment is gone, you can get a little bit of a, a, just a, a touch more understanding of what that battle was by standing in the spot. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, when, when you get a chance to feel a uniform, a, a reproduction uniform of the era, like put your hands on it or put it on your body or like just to feel how rough and how hot it was mm-hmm. at the heft of a musket, you know, you know, that sort of thing gives you just a little bit more tactile understanding of that moment. Yes. But again, a moment you'll never be able to fully recreate or experience yourself, but to give you just a broader understanding of what that individual person went through you know, and then on the flip side, standing there and seeing like, okay, well, if I'm standing here and the battles are giving him so much of a bigger picture of, oh, wow, you know, oh, if I'm here, I know why. I know Washington, D.C. is 20 miles away. Wow, this was a battle to defend the Capitol or this was a battle to prevent something from happening. So it's little mundane, you know, those little sort of, you know, tactile elements that help you experience the moment that are really important so you can connect to that individual human being mm-hmm. that went through that historical moment. And then the flip side of it is, is you know, when you are in the spaces, it helps give, I, I hope helps give a perspective of the larger picture of what was going on. And actually Valley Forge, there's a moment I get at Valley Forge that's quite about this. A lot of people ask, well, why here? Why this particular Pennsylvania Valley as opposed to the dozens of others? And when you explain a while, when when my staff kind of put out, well, you know, we're sort of wedged in between the British, you know, the British stuck in Philadelphia, or the British in Philadelphia and the you know, continental government in exile, you know, we're the sort of, we're the last, we're the last ditch defense, if you will, of the British just marching west and ending the American experiment. All of a sudden that big picture reference of like, oh, oh, this is why this place is important. You exactly. Know? You know, exactly. And I could run off the names of all the regimental commanders that are here. <laughs> And I don't think that would necessarily let you all that's useful information. And, you know, it certainly doesn't want you don't want to lose that information. 
I think having that individual, that tiny individual experience, and then that bigger picture of how did this event echo through history to affect you standing here right, right now today? Yes, absolutely. And and I'm sorry to stop. We're basically out of time for the show. So you're, you're absolutely right. History is a study of human behavior and we need to touch it and taste it and feel it. And what you're doing at Valley Forge and your, your career, it's, it's a marvelous teaching tool for all of us. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for sharing with us today. And we're going to pick it up with Adam in our next show. So Adam, thank you for coming and sharing with us today. Oh, thank you for having me on, and uh, thank you to everyone listening. I hope you have a, a fabulous summer, either in the national parks or wherever, wherever, you, wherever you choose to find your history. And please, everyone, visit Valley Forge. So, this is 1180 AM WFYL, working for your liberty. 